you do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. Mr. President, I'm here! I voted for you! Wait a minute. That guy on the grassy knoll's got a gun. He's gonna shoot the president. Holy smokes, I've gotta do something. All right, Lee, time to become an American hero. Darkmyths.org and Neopolis Media Group proudly present to you the Lone Gunman Podcast. Featuring your host, Rob Clark, where research comes to shine. And miss come to die. Stay tuned. Be right there. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the show. This is episode number 137 of the Lone Gunman Podcast, and I'm your host, Rob Clark. And I know I said the last episode was 137, but <clears throat> sometimes I'm an idiot, <laughs> and I really need to go back and look before I speak. Uh, but this is episode 137, that's for sure. Uh, I didn't number the last one right. I just said it wrong, because sometimes I'm an idiot. <laughs> So, this week on the show, I am going to have a special show replay. Now, it's not a rerun that you've heard here before. Uh, this is from when I was on the O'Chili Effect last year, and I talked to Chuck about a guy named Buell Wesley Frazier. Now, before everybody gets their panties all in a bunch, which seems to happen whenever I speak this man's name, let me reiterate, as I do in this show with Chuck, that I do not believe that Buell Wesley Frazier was some kind of sinister conspirator in the assassination. No, no, no. I do think, however, that he is a uh, a liar. <laughs> uh, there is a difference. And I believe the lying stems from self-preservation, starting on November 22nd, 1963. And look, I don't begrudge the dude, okay? I think we all would have tried to do the same thing at 19 years old, naive, uh, and he's said it as much in his interviews. Um, you know, especially with the Sixth Floor Museum. He said it, that he was scared shitless. Well, not, he didn't say that, but I'm saying that. He was scared shitless. Um, he was 19 years old, being charged as an accessory to the murder of the president. Now, 
as things unfold and maybe he got a clearer picture of who Lee Harvey Oswald was and what he was connected to or what he was into, such as uh, communism, which was a very, very bad thing to be associated with back then, um, you know, you might want to distance yourself. You might want to say that you don't know this guy as well as you maybe did. You might want to say you didn't uh, put yourself in this guy's proximity as often as you did. You might not want to say that you hung out with the guy or did fun shit together as often as you did or at all. And I don't blame him. I don't blame him one bit, but look, we only have so many days on this earth and we're all getting older. And 53 and a half years is a very, very long time to be carrying around the burden truth. Now, people don't like when I talk about truth. Uh, you know, I like to think of myself as a conspiracy-minded person at heart. Um, it makes me question things more. It makes me look into things deeper. It makes me analyze better. Um, and that's ultimately what I want from this investigation into the murder of President Kennedy from anybody. I want the truth. I don't care one way or the other if Oswald was up there pulling the trigger. I don't care if he was set up. I don't care if he was half-ass into it and, and chicken down the line. I, I don't care. What the, I just want the truth. Be it what it may. I'm not a blind uh, conspiracy, you know, nut, so to say, where everything's a conspiracy and that's all I believe and, you know, you'll never tell me different. I want the truth, whatever the truth may be, wherever the truth may lie, I want the truth about what happened that day. Um, and we don't have it yet, so we need help. I need help from the people that knew Lee Harvey Oswald best who were there with him that day. You know, there's very, very, very few living witnesses left alive today who knew the man, who worked with the man, who knew him intimately. Uh, you know, we got Robert Oswald, Ruth Payne, Rena Oswald, and the guy we're going to be talking about today, Buell Wesley Frazier. Now, I understand, you're 19 years old, you're scared to death, you get charged with the murder of the president, you brought the murderer to work that day, who possibly could have had a gun with him, um, and I'll get into all this analysis and everything, breaking it down in the show today that you're going to hear, so I don't need to reiterate it here, but what I do want to say here is that, you know, just because I speak ill of the man. I know many people out there like him. I know many people out there call him a friend. Um, but we have too many, too many, too many indications uh, that he's been lying to us for the past 53 years about what really happened that day. And don't think for a second, just because, you know, think you're a friend that he's going to tell you the truth. That's not the case. 
if he hasn't been telling the truth for the past 53 years, you know, the question is, why start now? I don't know. Um, murder is uh, not covered by the statute of limitations in Texas. Maybe he's still scared of that. Maybe he still could be charged as an accessory if the truth came out. I don't know. Um, but we have many indications of Buell's uh, just blatant out, right out lying, uh, deception, and misre misrepresentation of, of the so-called facts, um, you know, in the past 53 and a half years. And I don't have to, I don't have to sit here and just talk about it. I can prove it. It's in print. It's on audio. It's in video that his story has changed throughout the years. Does that indicate deception? Probably so. Um, I would also urge everyone out there to pick up a copy on Amazon of the assassination tapes by George O'Toole, who proves in his book that Buell Frazier is lying using a voice stress analysis machine among other folks involved with the case. This machine determines whether you're being truthful or being deceptive, and there's different levels of it. Uh, and it's more accurate than a lie detector test. And I don't care what the low nut people try to tell you. You know, I get so much kickback from, from both sides when I talk about Buell Frazier. It's, it's, it boggles the mind. And, uh, you know, you're going to hear in this episode some new information, uh, some new analysis about what happened that day. So, without further ado, first of all, let me thank Chuck for having me on the show last year. I really enjoyed it. He does a great job. His analysis is top-notch. You can check him out at Ocelli.com. You can hear him every night on American Freedom Radio at 8 o'clock. Uh, he's got a great archive there. You can also go back and listen to on his podcast. Uh, you can also find me and Chuck and Carmine over on NEMG. That's N-E-A-M-G.com. That's Neapolis Media Group for you uh, slow folks out there. Find all of our stuff, our best stuff, everything having to do with the assassinations of the 60s, the intelligence community, and the analysis thereof by us and uh, our crack team of researchers over there at Neopolis Media Group. So anyway, without further ado, uh, let's get into it. I hope you enjoy, and this is just in case you missed it, uh, last year, I've been holding on to it since then. I do have permission from Chuck to play it. So you don't have to go run tell him that I'm playing a show on my show. Uh, because he knows. I've just been holding on to it for a while. Um, holding on to it for a rainy day, so to speak. And it's raining today. So I'm giving it to you. Uh, so enjoy, folks. This is me on the Ocelli Effect from October 2016. Enjoy. Get ready. 
ready for the the Ocelli effect. I'm a big fan of the show. Chuck Ocelli, and he's been known for many years as a blind GFK researcher specializing in intelligence agency involvement in multiple assassination, propaganda, and other global criminal operations in the 20th and 21st centuries. Your listeners are extremely fortunate to have you, and everybody at AFR I know loves you, man. We should learn from our relatively recent history, my brother. That's where I'm coming from. I say how proud to the people. And now, and now, most, the most underrated voice in all, in all media, the, the alternative's alternative, Chuck Ocelli. 14th day of October 2016, allegedly according to that thing we call a calendar. And hooray, I didn't choke on my fluid right before the show started tonight, so we've broken the string. This is the Ocelli Effect broadcast live on American Freedom Radio at AmericanFreedomRadio.com. That is where the live show originates from. Of course, we're heard on several other networks, and we do appreciate you no matter how it is you're coming across the show. Hey, this is definitely the show that's not going to come at you like a bitch. Anyway. Moving forward, <laughs> we're not going to talk about Donald Trump tonight, or maybe we will. I don't know. Maybe we'll talk about Trump. Maybe we'll talk about the war criminal. Maybe we'll talk about the presidential selection circus at some point, but I know it's not the main focus. You know, Fridays, Friars Day, as it were, is uh, one of those times I usually bring on somebody that I think is really a featured guest, and I'm going to go back to doing that a whole lot more often. So we're going to kick it off with a guy who is a friend. I call him a friend, that's for sure. He does something a little different from me. He does the Lone Gunman podcast. The Lone Gunman podcast. That's right, kiddies. TLGpodcast.com, if I remember correctly, Rob. Isn't that uh, the website? That's correct. Rob Clark, uh, you know, it, and it's amazing. Of course, we mention him all the time on the shows we do with uh, with Carmine Sabastano. Obviously, he's also linked up with Neapolis Media Group, um, Carmine, Rob, you know, and, and recently even Michael Swanson has kind of been added to the mix there, a uh, group of individuals that are after what, historical accuracy, and how about a little bit of truth when it comes to a whole lot of issues, but well, there is a special focus on the assassinations of the 60s and exactly what that meant to people because we still have unsolved crimes in my estimation. Anyway, all of that aside, Rob wanted to talk about something, and I was going to put him on the show with Carmine this week, but then <laughs> I thought maybe it would be better to have Rob on by himself because this is going to take a little while, and this is going to be something that – uh not only do I say we should examine this particular event, but remember this in the context when we're examining different, well, let's call them meaningful things that occur and the way the media covers them and the way that different character actors are presented to us as time goes on. Now, what is Chuck talking about? Well, usually not much. I'm talking in circles. But, of course, we're going to discuss the JFK assassination tonight and a very relative figure. Now, Rob. Not everybody who even is vaguely aware of the JFK assassination knows about the figure that we're going to focus on tonight. Um, I think that we should give people an introduction and understanding of who it is we're talking about in general before we get, well, grisly details. What do you think? Oh, absolutely. And, and, and the guy we're going to be talking about here tonight is named Buell Wesley Frazier. And for those out there not familiar with this gentleman, uh, he actually is still alive today. Uh, one of the few living witnesses that's still around now. Um, and he's actually the guy 
that drove Lee Harvey Oswald to work that day. Mm. And, you know, people think that he's kind of an innocuous character, that he was just a, a hapless victim, you know, in this momentous occasion in history. Um, and that's certainly the way he was uh, portrayed in the Warren Commission report and in the years since in the media. But, <laughs> but, uh, you know, here we are. We have the benefit of hindsight of the past 53 years to analyzed uh, some of Buell's actions and who this guy was. And that's what we're going to be talking about here tonight is ma- mainly some of the oddities and, and some of the stuff that a lot of people really don't know about this guy. Right. Now, I think it's fair to say immediately that the rest of the world got to know about Buell Wesley Frazier essentially in 1964, right when the Warren Commission was being released, CBS television was doing a two-hour program, if I remember correctly, on the release of the Warren Commission report. And they had already in the can interviews with a lot of people. Uh, uh, G. Ruth Payne was one of them. Uh, uh, there was, uh, you know, different police officers, so on and so forth. Individuals who had been involved in the arrest of Lee Harvey Oswald, the alleged investigation that emerged that day, all of that. Buell Wesley Frazier is the guy who, as you said, gave Oswald a ride to work that day, but apparently was somebody who, well, lived near Ruth Payne, right, Uh, was constantly giving Oswald rides, it seemed as though, and the story that was floated, you know, this is the general consensus that was out there for many years, is that he was just somebody who happened to work at the school book depository with Lee, uh, may have actually, his sister might have been instrumental in him getting the job, um, and he was someone who was willing to help give Lee, who could not get around so easily on his own, uh, get back into the area where the school book depository was, which was a bit of a distance from where Ruth Payne's house was, when Lee went to go visit Marina and his children. Um, you know, it seems like this is just a good guy who got caught up in the wrong place at the wrong time. You know, if you believe that Oswald is the lone gunman, in fact, he definitely was just a guy who was trying to be good about things and uh, help out a coworker and some guy that, you know, just needed a little assistance to be able to interact with his family and such, right? Yeah, you know, um, Buell back then, he was, he was just 19 years old and uh, recently – had recently moved from Huntsville, Texas, to Dallas to stay with his sister and and her family, or her husband Bill and and their kids. And like 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 you said, you know, they lived fairly close to Ruth Payne. And uh, you know, whenever Oswald would go visit Marina at the, at the Payne's residence, he would ask Buell if he could catch a ride to work or a ride from Dallas to Irving, uh, you know, with him. And as we're going to get into tonight a little bit, uh, maybe more often than that, uh, it would seem. But, you know, I'm not here to paint, you know, Bill Frazier as some, uh, you know, sinister conspirator in, in the assassination. And that's not what I'm trying to do. But what I am trying to do is set the record straight and get to the truth of things because I think the truth paints a very different picture uh, than what, than what we've been taught. You know, I think this guy was scared to death, um, about what he experienced back then, what he was, what he was facing back then. 
And, uh, you know, because a lot of people don't know, uh, you know, but Oswald wasn't the only one arrested that day. Well, that's true. And uh, factually speaking, when media reports came out that a uh, that an Enfield rifle was taken into custody by the police, uh, I'm satisfied that that may very well have been uh, Buell Wesley Frazier's rifle they were talking about. Um, it's interesting. Yeah. And also, the way the storyline emerges, whether you are a, you know, a lone gunman supporter or a conspiracy advocate, uh, the fact is that Buell Wesley Frazier comes into play regarding the package that Oswald was allegedly carrying to work that day um, mm-hmm. because he would have been, what, carrying it in his car, <laughs> you know? And uh, this yeah. is the guy he took a ride with. And was it curtain rods? Was it the, uh, you know, sinister man liquor Carcano rifle that we've gotten to know iconically over the years? Was it this? Was it that? Could it have just been his lunch? All these different things. Buell Wesley Frazier should be a good eyewitness uh, as to what happened there. And that's really why he was such a person of interest. Uh, not that he had, you know, just been a nice guy kind of giving Lee a ride, but because he could have been an eyewitness to a key element of what would later become the case against Lee Harvey Oswald. Um, and I- I've always found him to be a strange figure because he did seem quite a bit uh, uh, terrorized by the whole thing. I think, you know, I've seen accounts where he was taken into custody and kind of, uh, uh, well, for lack of a better word, sort of bullied by the police a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it gets into a lot of weird areas. So where should we go from here now that we've laid all the groundwork on this guy? What What is the real historical truth going forward from, let's just say, that 1964, obviously, post-Warren Commission testimony, post-CBS television show appearance, all of that, What? Where, where should we go from there? Well, I think we should start at the beginning. You know, start at the beginning of that day, and, and kind of take it, go through the day a little bit, and then and then uh, we can go up through the years since. Um, okay. You know, like you mentioned, the big thing here we're talking about is he's the best witness to this so-called package. Now, if Oswald shot the president, then he had to bring a gun to work that day. And, you know, Buell Frazier stated that Lee Oswald had a package. The problem with Buell Frazier's package is that he stated it was only two feet long. And even when he, you know, explained to investigators where it was located in the back seat, they came up with 27 inches, which is still just three inches more than two feet. Now, the Manlicker Carcano, even when it's broken down into the smallest possible package, it's still going to be, you know, 36, 37 inches long. And so the package is going to need to be at least a couple inches more than that to fit everything in there right. Mm -hmm. And what he stated was it was made out of cheap dime store paper, basically. You know, not heavy brown wrapping paper like they would use at the school book depository to wrap their books up and send out. Now, as we all know, you can't fit a three-foot rifle in a two-foot package. That just does not work. And for everybody well, out there to visualize, the, the Manlicker Carcano, is right. it was a short-barreled um, styled rifle that was actually – you could fit a bayonet on the end of it, you know, because this is a World War II rifle. Now, it did not have a bayonet on it, but you can't stab somebody if you have a longer barrel than the bayonet, 
So this is a very short barrel coming out of the wooden stock. So you couldn't break it down too much. And we're talking three or four inches, basically, than the original size. You, you say something there, Chuck? Well, I was just going to say, you know, it, it comes into play here because once you do break it down, yeah, that's the problem. The wooden stock itself is too large to fit. Now, why is this interesting? Okay, two foot, three foot, people might be saying to themselves, well, what's the difference? But here's the thing. The report is or was at the time anyway, that Oswald took this alleged package and long ways held it in a cupped hand and placed it under his arm. Now, to give the listener an idea about that, just look at your own arm and imagine taking a stick and putting it under, you know, your arm and cupping your hand underneath it. You're not generally, unless you're a very, very large person, which Lee Harvey Oswald was not, you're not going to be able to fit three feet there. It just doesn't work, okay? Um, no. And as you said, the Manlicker Carcano, no matter how you slice it, you know, oh, it's a rifle, it's a carbine, whatever you want to call it, the fact is that long ways, even broken down to its most essential components, like you said, will not fit in the area where people are describing it having to have gone. Now, over the years, people like Arlen Specter have tried to say that, and of course he's dead now, but believe me, if he was still alive, he would probably make this very same argument, that what does it matter if it came out a few inches above or if it was above his shoulder and somebody didn't notice it and it was kind of carried in that way. Now, I, I, I dare people out there to think about carrying an object like this, and would you carry it in such a way that it would obscure, you know, Lee Harvey Oswald with his close-cropped hair, so it's not like he had, you know, long hair like mine, where I could actually probably hide an inch or two sticking above my shoulder in my hair or something like that. They weren't wearing winter clothes, okay, even though it was November. Uh, you're not looking at a very uh, a cold city in Dallas there, okay, so you don't have jackets or anything else being able to obscure this. This is literally up against, well, what, a T-shirt and uh, and maybe an overshirt, and that's it. So, you know, it's kind of strange. How do you fit this package, right? Yeah, you know, and it's not it's not set in stone that that Lee Oswald disassembled this rifle and then somehow with magically with a dime up on the sixth floor in the heat of the moment and you know with the president coming he's trying to put a rifle together with a dime and you know once you take a rifle apart you're gonna it's gonna mess up you know the, the, you have to recite the weapon in basically because you're you're loosening up screws you're retightening things and if unless you get it just right you know it's going to be off and, and we know the condition of the rifle when it was found it needed uh shimmed and needed sighted in it was in pretty bad shape as far as a you know premium uh prime rifle would be you know that you're going to use for something like this but you know and i always thought you know what it makes no sense it, you know if you're going to take a rifle into the building I'm not going to take it apart to save three or four inches, you know, that, that, but that's just me. You know, I would leave it intact. And, uh, you know, this, this is just something that the Warren Commission came up with to possibly shorten the package to match what Buell Frazier has been saying because he said it back then early, supposedly on that day. And 53 years later, he still swears up and down it was two feet long. And and it also explains away the lack of witnesses that would state that Oswald was carrying anything into the depository. It gives you 
uh, a plausible way to explain. Nobody sees him go in there with anything in his hands, actually. Uh, so if it's kind of obscured, if it's sort of hidden, you know, at, at the side of his body and kind of tucked in like that, well, then, gee, maybe people missed it. And clearly uh, he couldn't have carried a gun in like that because people would have noticed he was carrying a rifle, even though it was hunting season, whatever else. Uh, they probably would have taken notice of it. So it really reduces the amount of need for other witnesses to state that he actually carried anything into the depository, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a 2,250-foot walk from where Bill Frazier parked his car. He actually parked his car at the other warehouse. Um, I forget what they call it, but it, it's not actually at the Texas School Book Depository. It's 2,250 feet away from the School Book Depository mm-hmm. in front of the other warehouse. And so, you know, you got him walking all this distance there. And when he goes into work, a guy by the name of Jack Doherty sees him coming in the door. Jack Doherty tells the warrant commission, guess what? I saw him coming into work and he wasn't carrying anything. And other than Jack Doherty, nobody remembers seeing this guy um, actually coming into work. Now, they saw him throughout the day. But, you know, if you imagine, if, you, if you're if you're Lee Harvey Oswald, you're coming into work and you have this big, huge, long package, what are you going to do with it? I mean, are you going to run right up to the sixth floor and, and, and throw it by the window? Or are you going to hide it somewhere? Problem. I mean, there's lots of hiding places in the school book depository, but there's also a lot of people around. Um, there's a lot of people milling about, a lot of, you know, a lot of other guys, and everybody's pretty much showing up for work here at about the same time, right. uh, you know, around 8 o'clock uh, that morning. Well, and the other thing to consider is that people were redoing the floor, so there were new employees as well that maybe, you know, you couldn't rely on to stay in a particular location or whatever. I mean, it would have been very, very hard to stash this thing reliably and say, look, I know that since these guys, based on their long-term routine, and Oswald himself had not worked there very long. So, you know, it's not as though uh, uh, he would have had a good idea of where to stash this thing and have nobody, uh, you know, accidentally run across it too, right? Right, yeah. And, and yeah, he, he had just come into the picture, come up from Huntsville, uh, you know, around the end of September, middle of September, end of September. And, uh, he had procured himself a job at the school book depository. Um, now there's some, a little dis- description or discrepancy about how he got the job at the school book depository, about whether it was through his sister, uh, hearing about it or, through the Massey Employment Agency, which the Warren Commission never did manage to establish. Mm. Um, now, <clears throat> Frazier testified that the reason for his move was to find a job, um, and it was kind of alluded to that he wanted to get away from his stepfather, who was apparently an alcoholic and it would, it would treat him bad. Um, and he, he's going to come into the picture a little later um, because mm-hmm. apparently he's in Dallas too. Um, so the whole little story about why Frazier is actually in Dallas kind of doesn't make sense. Um, but yeah, he was uh, he was interviewed by Roy Truly on September 13th, and he started working there the very same day. Um, he actually testified that he was phoned about the position at the school book depository by the Massey Employment Agency. Um, but yet we hear from others, you know, but that it was his sister who had heard something about it and sent her brother there. Um, 
But there's nothing in the records indicating there was a Massey Employment Agency. Um, they, you know, they never established this. Right. Um, cause he, he, she, she told the commission that she had helped her brother, um, search for work because he was someone not with not very much of an education. So apparently she didn't have a high, uh, a high image of her, of her poor, you know, country bumpkin brother. Um, and she was doing him a favor, bringing him up here and, and, you know, finding him a job. But, uh, yeah, we can start our day there, um, because in Irving, you know, they're, they're getting ready for, uh, breakfast that morning at the Fraser household. And Lee Oswald actually comes to the Fraser house. Now, normally he would just stand out on the street or whatever. Buell would pick him up and they would go. But this day was different. Um, Oswald actually came to him and, mm. I forget if it was uh, Lenny May's mother or if it was Lenny May who actually saw Oswald allegedly coming down the street with the package and putting it into Buell's car. Um, right. And now, was, memory, when, if, if memory serves me here, I think it was Lenny May who said it at one point. And what's fascinating about that, I think you're about to tell us. <laughs> yeah. Now, Buell parked his car on the other side of a carport of which there is a wooden wall. Um, and she later said, you know, what she, she said is she saw Oswald put this package in the car. Later on when it was pointed out to her that, you know, I'm sorry, but you can't see through walls, uh, she changed her story to, well, I heard the door open and close, so he must have put the package in there. Yeah, but the problem is, of course, how do you establish that that was a package or what it was or anything else, considering the fact that, well, once again, you can't see through a wall. Uh, I've always found that one kind of funny, but, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it could have been his lunch, you know, for all we know. And I'd like to point something out real quick that, you know, when it comes to Lee Oswald, you know, everybody likes to say, well, he's a, he was a loner. You know, he was a, he, he didn't like to be around people and he kept to himself and this, that and the other. But, you know, we have in his short little history here from his time in Russia, it's very clear that he had friends and he liked to be social. Um, even his time in Dallas, you know, he, he, he had friends, you know, in, in the white Russian community and they liked to be social. Hmm. Um, and in New Orleans growing up, you know, he had friends. He, he, and he's always had friends and never seemed to have a problem making friends uh, at any point. Now, no, you know, what's interesting about that, though, I got to be honest with you, is that the characterizations yeah. that I understand from people that I am satisfied knew him are that, yes, indeed, he did make connections with people, but he had a habit of being kind of socially awkward, uh, kind of a moody guy. And uh, would sometimes, you know, be a little bit confrontational, would be a little bit off-putting to some people. Um, but this is, again, not very unusual. I don't think it's particularly remarkable. It's just sort of like he would make connections with people but not really know how to socialize very well. Some people confuse that, I think, with him being antisocial. Uh, would you agree with that? Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. Um you know, but I, I forget what what's this guy, Ernst Tinovitz, the guy you had on your show from Russia. Right, Ernst Tinovitz, yeah. Yeah, you know, they were friends. They hung out. They did fun stuff together. Um, you know, 
I think with people that he shared a common interest in things with, somebody who that maybe he could learn something from, um, it, it was a little different than, you know, knowing Joe Schmo from down the street or, you know, or growing up with somebody. I think, you know, if it was somebody that had a common interest with him or somebody that he could learn something from or expand his horizons with, um, you know, I think he would be more open to befriending them. And yeah, realistically, you're right. Exactly. That that's that's a perfect characterization of it. If uh, if he has a common sort of uh, bond with certain individuals, you know, like uh, look, a, a guy who and remember now, Oswald only lived to be 24 years of age. So you know, the maturity levels that could be observed out of the cat, you know, at certain points, <laughs> are you know, you got you got to put it in context. Okay, uh, he's only up to 24. I know we talked about Buell being 19. But I mean, a 24-year-old, you know, hate to say this for the younger listeners out there, but you're not, you know, your 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 whole personality is not entirely developed just yet. You know what I mean? So this guy was a work in progress, really. And uh, coming from the background that we understand, you could see where some, you know, slightly uh, um, odd social awkwardness could emerge from this kind of character when you take an objective viewpoint. Uh, as to the way he grew up, you know, not the uh, crazy kid, lone nut kind of uh, stuff. But when you objectively observe and you take a look at the fact that, you know, his mother, who was obviously a big influence on him, was a bit strenuous, let's just say, emotionally on people around her, uh, you know, stuff like that. I mean, you could see that this guy might develop to be a little bit uh, a little bit awkward on occasion, but uh, definitely not a, a complete malcontent loner type. I, I object to that every time I hear it. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Now it always seemed to me that that his relationship with with Buell, you know, would have been would have been different than than we're led to believe. Um, like you said, you know, these guys are about the same age. They're young guys. You know, Lee had already been in the Marines. He'd already lived in Russia, married, had a kid. You know, that would have been something that that, that Frazier would have asked him about. You know, out of curiosity. Or Lee would have said something about, you know, just kind of in a boasting kind of way. You know, well, I've, I've done this. I've done that. I've, yeah, you know, I've, been, would, you... I've been to Japan and, uh, you yeah. know, stuff like that. You, young guys would do this. Yeah, man, I, I've definitely, you know, think about it for a second. When you were a young guy, if you knew somebody who had traveled the world and you had not, which uh, uh, Buell had not at that point. I mean, he did wind up doing a little traveling later. But <clears throat> when uh, when you're looking at that kind of thing, it's sort of like, hey, this guy would say, yeah, well, you know, when I was in Japan, just it would come up as part of a conversation, you would think, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so, you know, you'd think that these guys would have some kind of a rapport. You know, Lee would want to probably seem like, you know, make himself out like he's this great guy, this world traveler. He's seen it all, done it all. You know, and, and Buell would have lapped this stuff up, being, you know, this young guy kind of enamored with you know, wow, you know, this is this is kind of crazy, you know, that I've got this friend now who's done all these cool things, seen the world, um, lived in Russia. I mean, that's a huge deal. You know, that's something that you would actually want to ask somebody about, you know, and, and find out stuff about. Because at the time, you know, everybody was very anti-communist. We're in the middle of the Cold War. You know, times are crazy back then. So, you know, I think these guys would have, you know, had more of a conversation that, then, you know, just, wow, it sure is raining, Lee, you know, uh, 
you know, on the way to work, you know, or, or whatever they, they talked about, supposedly. Which, yeah, which is an interesting red flag to me whenever I hear Frazier describing his uh, interactions with Oswald is that there's no texture to them. Uh, it seems as though, you know, a guy out of the blue walked up and asked him, you know, can I catch a ride with you or whatever? And that was it. And then they just didn't really talk. Uh, it, it seemed really bizarre to me that you would have somebody in your car, you know, um, a couple times a month and not begin to have some sort of, hey, you know, uh, what kind of music do you like or something? You know, turn on the radio. Did, did you hear about this? Any, who knows? Whatever it might be. I'm just saying randomly. <clears throat> you'd imagine that, uh, that something would have to emerge where, you know, well, hey, we, let, let's just say again, two young guys, maybe they were talking about women, right? Could have been anything. Yeah. Anything. That would have, uh, but but none of that's ever there when Frazier talks about it. You notice that? Yeah, you know, and, and something else that, that that could have brought them together is, like you mentioned earlier, you know, Buell owned this three hundred three British Enfield rifle. He liked to hunt. You know, he liked to shoot his guns, and allegedly Oswald had this, uh, you know, old uh, Italian rifle. Um, and we, we actually have a witness report from Commission Exhibit 3077 from Garland Slack. And this is what Mr. Slack has to say. He says, in an effort to resolve discrepancies in information furnished by Mr. Slack concerning this incident, Mrs. Slack contacted Mr. Slack during the interview. According to Mrs. Slack, Mr. Slack maintained that Oswald was at the rifle range on November 17, 1963, and that he had been brought there by a man named Frazier from Irving, Texas. Mrs. Slack stated she felt her husband was confused as to the date when he observed the individuals he believes to be Oswald and Frazier at the range, but he was sincere in the statement he had previously made to agents and during his testimony before the President's uh, Commission. So, you know, okay, we're back in 1963 in Texas. Mm -hmm. You know, you have two guys that don't like to, you know, drink, drink it up and party, you know, but still they're young. They might want to do something fun together. What better, Chuck, than to go shoot some guns together? Oh, that would have made perfect sense. Yeah. And and Garland Slack, by the way, interestingly enough, even that that uh, Warren Commission TV show thing, which I got from the National Archives myself, uh, he's on there. As one of the, you know, well, the, we can't substantiate this, and I think that's where the Warren Commission wound up coming down on it, is that they couldn't quite square up Slack's uh, account of him being at the rifle range uh, with, you know, where Oswald was, and it might have had something to do with the date. But interesting that this guy comes up with this seemingly random uh, uh, fact that sort of fits, and again, it, it would fill in a gap. These guys could have talked about guns. Uh, Oswald had been part of the hunting club, you know, in, uh, in, in Russia. Uh, he obviously had experience with firearms, having been in the Marine Corps. Okay. Not, not to say he was a great marksman or anything else or a gun enthusiast of any kind. I'm just saying that this is a common experience that these two could have shared. Uh, Frazier, you know, as a civilian gun you know, as a civilian gun enthusiast who appreciated hunting, et cetera, et cetera, like you said, and Oswald with his military experience, even that could have been something where, hey, let's go to the firing range, and it almost makes perfect sense, right? Yeah, for sure. You know, and, and this is not I, – I believe that this this incident is, is separate than, than the alleged, you know, this crazy guy was shooting at my target, you know, this guy named Oswald, you know. This is this is a separate incident um, altogether, and because Slack even went on to identify Frazier's car as being the one that brought him, mm -hmm. um, 
you know, I said they had the rifles in the trunk. Now, so, Slack immediately jumps to my memory as a guy who was wearing a sort of a, a straw, semi kind of cowboy looking hat thing that was on that 1965 uh, or 64 yeah. broadcast. Though I do remember him being on there, and then them basically immediately after him making a short statement, you know, Walter Cronkite comes on and goes, "But the Warren Commission could not quite substantiate," <laughs> you know, all of that. So, uh, but I'm just using it as a point of reference. I'm not saying that I believe it or don't believe it. I'm just saying it's there. It's interesting. And uh, it doesn't completely lack any sort of credibility. There is a possibility that Mr. Slack was uh, relating something and just had the time frame wrong or uh, or a couple of other details wrong. But it seems to me a little bit too close to what should have been or could have been the reality for it to be absolute nonsense. That's all I'm saying. Right. Yeah. And like I said, I've seen that uh, little bit of video, too. And he seems to be a credible, uh, you know, guy, not not just, you know, saying things for the heck of it. Um, which which brings us to this point. You know, this is when I when I first saw this a couple of years ago, you know, investigating looking at looking a little closer to the, closer at Fraser because, you know, his story has never made sense to me. And something was always nagging me in the back of my head about this guy. Um and this was the the first indication well not the first, but one of the one of the bigger indications that Maybe Frazier's not telling the entire truth and not out of a sinister, you know, uh, way of doing it, but out of a, a, a CYA mode or uh, self-preservation mode. All right. Now, here's here's something that we all need to keep in mind as we try to uh, go back and interview people that were firsthand witnesses to things and historical events. And this has emerged over and over when it came to JFK stuff. And I've I've talked to a lot of witnesses over the years, uh, Rob. And I got to tell you that almost all of them who uh, are very much in line with the idea that Oswald is, you know, the guilty party and that's that. Um, quite often will turn around and give you the off-the-record comment. You know, they'll say, look, I really don't even want to talk about this because I don't want to be tied to it. It's just one of those things I don't even like to be associated with. I'm very unhappy that I've been associated with it. I mean, you know, uh, putting aside even, you know, stuff like <laughs> Marion Baker once said, I wish I had shot that, that SOB myself. Uh, you know, I mean, literally, these were off the record kind of comments. And um, a lot of people did that and said over and over again that, look, I don't really want to tell all the details of every single thing or remember them all or however they put it, because uh, because I don't want to fuel anything else. I don't want to because they start to realize that they can become a story in and of themselves. And uh, a whole lot of people in Dallas, I mean, again, especially police officers later on, uh, which is why Larry Sneed's work on on that when he put together that book, No More Silence, was kind of really amazing that he got that many police officers to talk to him, because most of those guys by that time wanted no part of the discussion. Even if they were there for five minutes, they didn't want to talk about it anymore um, because people had taken what they said, twisted it, run with it in different directions, and they became conscious of that over the years. Now, what's different about Wesley Buell Frazier is that his story lacks a whole lot of context and a whole lot of just seemingly missing pieces that you don't really know what they are. But like we just pointed out, there's no context for discussions here there's no um 
there's no relatable sort of reason why he was friends with him, let's just say, or why he was friends with him also be more than happy to tell you that you know look he seemed like a good guy loved his children uh you know this and that i mean we even saw that as late as when he did the uh the men who killed kennedy interviews with nigel turner right uh he was yep. still saying the same stuff so he would characterize the guy but never give you a uh an example of how he really characterized it i mean every once in a while he'd let something slip oh well he he would talk about his kids but never really explained how that happened or what kind of context that came up in. I mean, do you get did you get that feeling as well, looking back at a lot of the stuff that had been put out publicly about him? Oh, for sure. And and that's one of the big red flags with, with Frazier is that if you actually step back and take a look at, at exactly what this guy's been up to for the past 53 years, it's, you know, you see him, you see him telling, eager to tell his story, um, you know, around the time. But you also see a lot of people, not just Frazier, but with distancing themselves um, from from even knowing this guy. And I'm talking about a lot of the school book employees because, I mean, you know, granted, this guy just this shot the president. You don't want to associate yourself with him. Plus, he's supposedly a communist. You, you know, back then, you really didn't want to associate yourself with him. Combine the two, you know. I'm not going to sit here and say, oh yeah, he was, he was my, he was one of my good friends, you know? Um, it's understandable why they would kind of distance themselves from Oswald a little bit. Um, yeah, like, I, like quite honestly, I think that's exactly the reason why we didn't hear very much from a lot of the, uh, black school book depository employees because, uh, you know, they already knew that they would be under scrutiny just for the fact that they were black in the South. I mean, bottom line, let's be honest. Yeah. All right. Uh, they definitely didn't want to tie themselves to the guy who just killed John F. Kennedy. Uh, you know, so they weren't going to sit there and really tell. I mean, Harold Norman kind of did a little bit, you know, tell his story, but not <clears throat> not uh, not so much, you know, not in so great a detail because they were being careful about it. Um you know, yeah, not I, so much at the time either. You know, it was it was years later that that you know that they would come out with with a lot of this stuff. Right, but I understand those guys. You know what right. I mean in a way. Uh, but but uh, but you're right. I, I think a lot of the other employees just sort of went, whoa, whoa, whoa I don't really know him. He just kind of was here. You know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> whether they knew him or not. Um, but yeah, but but Frazier, as we stated, immediately uh, was willing to talk to CBS, was willing to talk to well, just about anybody seemed like. Um, but again, odd sort of uh, way of discussing it. So go ahead. Yeah, so I started thinking a little bit, Chuck. Okay, you know something something was odd here. So I, I and and the Warren Commission, if if nothing, were very thorough. It would seem in their investigative abilities and their investigation of, of Oswald's activities. And one thing that was glaringly missing to me was, okay, you allegedly have a cab driver and a bus driver who, who drove Oswald away from the Texas School Book Depository that day. But by all accounts, when he did not get a ride from Buell Frazier, um, to work and or back or to Irving or or something of this nature, he supposedly rode the bus to work. Now, I didn't see anything in the Warren Commission about them interviewing the bus driver who would pick Lee up 
every morning and take him to work or pick him up at the school book depository and take him back every day. I didn't hear any accounts of witnesses who would ride the exact same bus as Lee Oswald every day. You know, can you imagine the story, Chuck? I mean, oh, my God, I rode the bus with this assassin for like six weeks and I didn't even know it. You know, it's crazy because, you know, back then when you rode the bus, it was the same. Pretty much, you know, the bus went along the same routes every day. You know, people would ride the bus. If they're riding the bus, they're, you know, they're taking the bus to work every day and home every day. You would see a lot of the same people every day and you would get to know their face. Um, you know, I mean, Oswald wasn't hideous looking or anything. <laughs> you know, people would have, people would have noticed him even if he didn't talk to anybody, you know. Um, you, you know, you just kind of subconsciously pay attention to things like this when you're riding the bus or you're riding the subway, you know, and you kind of see the same people day after day. Um, so that was missing. So something said, okay, well, would it make sense if Frazier just swung by every morning, Lee Oswald up and took him to work? You know, because Buell's a really nice guy. You know, he is. Or at least he seems to be to me. Right. And, you know, for him to swing out of his way, maybe for, mm, I think it was a mile and a quarter out of his way, it would have taken five minutes, Chuck, to swing out and grab Oswald and bring him to work or take him home. Um, so I found, I did a little digging and I found a, some HSCA testimony that kind of gives credence to uh, that theory. And the first guy I'd like to talk to uh, talk to you about is, is of course, Harold Norman. Um, and we talked about him. He was one of the African-American workers in the school book depository at the time. Mm-hmm. And he's questioned by the HSCA guy. He says uh, Maxwell is the guy interviewing him. And Maxwell says, Wes Frazier, the guy that drove Oswald to work, was he friendly with everybody in that place? Along pretty well with everybody in the place. Maxwell, and of all the people in the place, about the only one you think that he was friendly with was Oswald was Wes. Norman says, well, I would say, I guess, because he rode to work with him. I don't know how many times he rode to work with him. And then Day asks him, who was Oswald's best friend in the building that you would think of? Norman says, well, I don't know him having one. No, I don't. Day says, well, did you know the man Oswald came to work with? Norman says, yes. What was his name? Frazier. Okay, and now we jump to James Jarman, um, who states this. Uh, did you associate with any particular or yeah, with any particular person there? No one, Jarman says, but I can't think of the dude's name, the one that brings brought him to work all the time. And uh, the guy says, a fellow that worked with him. Jarman says, yeah. Um, then they said, uh, asked him, did they come to work there together? Jarman says, yes, he always brought Oswald to work. Hmm. Always brought him to work. Now, that's interesting because uh, both Harold Norman and uh, and, and uh, James Jarman, you know, which is Junior Jarman, that's uh, what they called him uh, there at the time. You know, the, these two guys, first of all, they're on the fifth floor of the school book depository uh, at the time of the shooting, which is kind of interesting. Um but they were employees there. They seemed to be observant, and uh, it's it's kind of fascinating. Now, to say just because Jarman says this guy brought him all the time, does that mean that he brought him every single day? Well, no, not necessarily, but it means he could have brought him there a lot of the time. And, uh, and who knows, you know, Oswald 
wouldn't be beyond walking a mile and three quarters or whatever, too. So it could be a combination. But then again, your assertion that he could have very well just been his ride to work every day, whether he was in Irvin or he was, you know, at the rooming house. Yeah, I mean, it's not out of the realm of possibility to, yeah. to hear Fraser saying, "Hey, Lee, it's no problem, man. I can swing out and get you. It's really, it's no problem." You know, and you know, who, who, I'm not going to turn out a free ride. It saves me money if I got to spend on the bus, or it saves me from walking. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, you it know? makes perfect sense. Uh, right, and uh, and and you are correct here that the that the Warren Commission takes a lot of time to explain every single thing. That Oswald does leading up to the assassination. I mean, they mapped out his life to a point where, you know, there's no time for, for <laughs> virtually anything else uh, right. to have happened other than what they said. So either you got to accept that they're entirely correct or they're way off. Uh, you know, but, but, but here's the thing. Nobody does ever come up, I don't think, and say that they rode the bus with him a lot. I mean, they even went and, and tried to find people that were supposedly on the bus with him when he went to Mexico City. But they didn't find anybody riding the bus with him to work, so it almost stands to reason that he didn't ride the bus to work or home very often. Uh, you yeah, know. or the bus driver who would, you know, definitely remember picking, you know, picking this guy up for six weeks, but. Should have, yeah, if he was steadily picking him up. I mean, uh, hey, I, I take, you know, various trips, uh, by bus and sometimes I get into a routine for a little bit and the drivers do get to know you, uh, even today. You know, uh, and, and I'm talking about in areas like New York and New Jersey where, believe me, the, you're talking about a much more dense population, a much more full bus. And these guys would get to know and remember you just a little bit based on what you were carrying, what you were wearing, uh, the fact that you just keep showing up, whatever. They even remember where you get dropped off. Uh, you'd be amazed what bus drivers remember. So, yeah. yeah. No, I, I hear you. You're, you're right. You're tracking perfectly as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. But go ahead. Now, now, we was not talked to you by the Warren Commission, but he was a, a school uh, depository employee. He worked at the other warehouse um, where Frazier parked his car right. that morning. Um, and in his HSCA interview, um, he says this. If I'm not mistaken, I think he rode with Frazier every day that he worked there, if I can recall. And the interviewer says, and earlier you said you recall that Oswald had worked there for six weeks. Uh, yes, he'd worked there for six weeks from mid-October to this November to the assassination. And the interviewer says, now, um, let me back up a little bit. Are you telling me that this fella said that somebody who worked in the book depository, the building down on Elm and Houston, hollered out the window and asked Frazier where was his rider? Shield says, mm-hmm. And uh, he says, are you talking about the morning of the assassination? Shields says, I think it was, Mr. Davis, if I'm not mistaken, I think it was. And uh, he says, and how did you come about this information? He says, well, I was down on the floor when they hollered out and said that, and the answer he gave them, I don't know. I think he said, I dropped him off at the building. Now, whoever it was was hollering and asked him, I don't know. Davis says, is it the morning of the assassination? Shields says, mm-hmm. Davis says, somebody hollered out the window at Frazier, says, where's your rider? And in your recollection, Frazier says, I dropped him off at the building. Yes. <laughs> okay, so, and then we go in a little further in the interview, and we see, um, I just lost my place. Um, well, it's interesting because if that's the case, if Shields' assertion is correct, then uh, then we now have a problem with Frazier telling us that, 
Well, he was carrying a package and he walked with him because according to the story that I remember, uh, he was supposed to be walking with him into the depository while he's carrying this package. Am I, am I misunderstanding something here? No, yeah, he did, he did tell the story about, you know, um, him having to sit and rev his engine up to charge his battery. Now, they've just driven, you know, the 20 minutes from Irving into Dallas, which you would think would be long enough to charge his battery. Even if the car is going to sit there all day, it really doesn't matter if he's going to rev it for 15 seconds before he shuts it off. You know, yeah. that, that, that part of the story never made sense to me. Now, I found my place back here. And, uh, so Shields says, um, Wesley Frazier, you're, you're correct. And the interviewer says, okay, but, uh, he rode to work with him. Where's Wesley Frazier? Yes. And they would park their car around Houston Street and get out and walk to the building on Elm Street. Now, this is, this is actually different than him parking at the other warehouse. What Shields is saying here is that they would park Right there on Houston Street, Cool Book Depository, because Houston kind of goes down beside it and right. kind of curves around the back side of it. And that's where they would normally park. And what corroborates what Shields just said right there, Roy Lewis, another School Book Depository employee, was actually interviewed at the beginning of this year uh, by Larry Rivera and company. Uh, but, you know, he did have some important things to say. And, and one of them was, that yes, Oswald brought him to work and he used the words every day and that they always parked on Houston Street right there behind and he would see him get out of the car every morning and come into work together. Which is, which kind of corroborates this HSCA testimony from 40 years ago. Hmm. Um, so that's interesting. And it, you know, so here we got, we got four eyewitnesses who basically are saying that Oswald, if not every day, at least more than what we're led to believe, would uh, catch a ride with Frazier to work. And if it's to be believed, what Shields says here, that, that Oswald was not with Frazier the morning of the assassination, that's interesting, you know. Because uh, Shields goes on to say, yes, I think Charles Gibbons hollered out there and asked Frazier, where was his rider? And he told him, I dropped him off at the building. Yeah, that was it. The interviewer says, "You say he drove. You, you say he drove him to work. You used to see him in the parking lot. Yes, mm-hmm. he'd come by that parking lot." And uh, the interviewer says, "Did he drive him to work every day that you can recall, or on certain days? Every day." Right. Now and this guy Shields would would stand out there and smoke a cigarette, you know, before he would go into work every morning. So he was he would just be standing out there and kind of see this activity. And you know, at the time, it doesn't really mean much, but. After the assassination, of course, it it kind of means something. Yeah, well, things take on a new meaning, and that's that's what's fascinating here because why? Now, people might be saying to themselves, you know, you guys are going through very minute details here and, and showing a little bit of a difference, and people's memories change. And Yeah, but here's the problem. Um, <clears throat> Frazier's story has always been that what he would do is take him out to Irvin. Uh, on weekends that he wanted to go see Marina. You know what I mean? That was the key here, that he was just, you know, willing to help him out so he could go see his family because Marina was staying at the Payne's house. And that's it. You know, which 
almost lends itself to the idea that they might have not had, you know, a lot of opportunities for conversations. I mean, let's just say during six weeks' time, he didn't take him out there every single weekend, but almost, right? So let's just say he took him out there five weekends. Uh, that's five car rides to and from. That's yeah. not necessarily uh, knowing the guy very well. He could have just you know, been trying to be a nice guy, which, again, seems to speak to Frazier's general demeanor and character from all reports. I mean, he's a nice guy. He's not a bad dude. Uh, he might be trying to be helpful, this kind of thing, and you could imagine him doing that. However, when we start to get into the idea that maybe Frazier was with him a lot more often. Um, well, he, he was, was at work. I mean, they worked together. They had the same job. Mm -hmm. They would see each other, you know, at different points during the day in the course of their jobs. And and would interact, you know, or had the opportunity to. Right. So they would have more than likely been better friends than what Frazier has described here. And you almost wonder if that means that Frazier is doing this to minimize his role. But then that sounds strange because, as you stated before, he's never been completely unwilling to discuss it or anything. I, I've never seen him... Uh, uh, show no interest, but but then again, you know, maybe things change over time. I don't know what to make of this, uh, Rob. You know, and we're we're getting ready to come up against the the break uh, at the bottom of this hour. But before we do, it kind of leaves some open questions so far, doesn't it? Oh, for sure. You know, it, it, it's our first indication here that we have that that Fraser might not be telling that the entire truth here, and we'll get to some other things after the in the next hour. That, uh, that even points more to that. And, you know, of course we can understand why, you know, after this guy's been, um, arrested and charged with being accessory to the, to the murder of the president and asked to sign a confession. And as you said, basically was ready to fight Will Fritz, uh, according to him. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll get into more about that, uh, next hour. Um, and like I said, you know, we are getting into some minute details here, but it's important when we're trying to establish the credibility of this important, very important, the most important, I think, eyewitness, uh, you know, to Lee Oswald, his activities that day and the assassination. Well, yeah, definitely is the most of, uh, you know, Frazier is definitely one of the most important witnesses that day to Oswald's activities because he has the best vantage point, having given him, a, given him a ride, at least on that day for sure. Uh, you know, allegedly claiming to have witnessed this package, which it should have contained the gun, if you are to believe that he actually brought the man Liquor Carcano in there, and a whole lot of the pieces just don't seem to fit. But of course, guys, my guest tonight is Rob Clark. He is the host of The Lone Gunman Podcast, which is at uh, tlgpodcast.com. I do believe it's available on Spreaker. You can also find it on Facebook, but we're going to get even deeper into this discussion about Wesley Buell Frazier and exactly what he may or may not have known, witnessed, understood, experienced in his relationship with Harvey Oswald. Stick around. The Ocelli effect is still going. And like I said, we will get much deeper into it in the second hour. Stay tuned to American Freedom Radio. We'll be right back. Monsanto playing us into the second hour of the Ocelli Effect here on American Freedom Radio at AmericanFreedomRadio.com, where the live show originates from. Of course, this is the Ocelli Effect. I am your host, Chuck Ocelli. 
My guest tonight, Rob Clark, is discussing the curious path of Buell Wesley Frazier, who was a witness to events leading up to the day that Lee Harvey Oswald was arrested uh, for the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And we're getting into some interesting areas here. I do advise you guys to go check out tlgpodcast.com. Of course, you can find Rob Clark linked to Neopolis Media Group, which is at neamg.com. And uh, you'll also find Find a tab for the Ocelli effect there as well. And don't forget my website, Ocelli.com, O-C-H-E-L-L-I.com. And, uh, hey, I'm in one of those spots where I could really use your support one way or another. So go ahead and visit it. Do what you got to do. Do appreciate it. Anyway, Rob, we have uh, gotten into some minutiae here, and I think it is definitely worth digging into this so that we understand one of the longest standing and still living witnesses to events leading up to the assassination. I also want to hear, though, from the listeners, if you guys dare to call in, <laughs> although I may I may not have to make the usual caveat to the call in. Um, quite honestly, usually, Rob, I say you're allowed to abuse the host, but not the guest when you want to call in. Uh, however, I think. Rob's the kind of guy who could roll with it anyway, so how about this? No shackles, no chains. Come on in and just say something that makes sense, and you're welcome. 218-339-8525. I don't think I need to protect Rob at all. 218-339-8525. Matter of fact, I'm telling you right now, Rob, one of these days I want to get together, have a couple of drinks with you, and and see what happens, my brother. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good to me. <laughs> and we're not yeah, too I'm far not... away. We're not too far apart from each other now. I mean, I'm in Georgia, uh, you know, so it's a little bit of a ride. But one of these days, brother, yeah, I think yeah, we're going to have to get together for sure. <laughs> for sure. So, but back to the topic at hand. I mean. <clears throat> And and very cool. By the way, uh, Rob is very approachable on Facebook and all that kind of stuff. You have a Twitter account too, don't you? I do. It's at TLG underscore podcast. TLG underscore podcast. I'm very sure I'm following him. I don't know if he's following me, but, uh, but whatever it is, you know, all those wonderful anti-social media things were available <laughs> out there. Uh, and, and on Spreaker too, by the way, Spreaker, uh, uh, Rob's show goes through there still, right? Yep. And you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, anywhere you can listen to a podcast. You can hear me pretty much. Absolutely. If, you, if there's somewhere you can't, let me know and I'll make it happen. There you go. You know, same thing here too. By the way, if uh, if you want to take this show and cut it up and use it as uh, an additional podcast, you're feeling lazy one week. Go right ahead. Um, <laughs> it's it's perfectly acceptable. Uh, and and anyway, the Ocelli effect is available all those ways as well. So, all right, move back to the subject at hand. And again, you guys can call in. I I don't think I gave out the number the next time, but here one more time: two one eight. Three three nine eight five two five, and we actually have a little side bet going as to the possibility of one particular caller making an appearance. Two one eight three three nine eight five two five. Feel free to call in, and I will add you into the discussion as we go forward. And if nobody calls in, I'll just kick back and have a chat with my buddy Rob. So there we go. Anyway, where did we leave off? We were talking about these other school book depository uh, employees giving different accounts than what Buell Wesley Frazier has effectively uh, related to us 
year after year, decade after decade since the assassination, uh, takes on a slightly different character and you wonder why. But you have uh, a lot more to tell us about uh, Mr. Frazier and his interactivity with well, the case, the officials, Oswald himself, probably. And um, I turn it over to you. All right. Yeah. Now, if you remember that morning of the 22nd, it was raining. Um, so it would make sense that nice guy Buell would drop off his his buddy Lee at the building. If it was raining that morning, you know, he was going to have to park a very far distance away. It doesn't make sense to me why, you know, you you wouldn't just drop him off and go park. So this other guy, you know, wouldn't have to walk in the rain, especially if he had a package. Um, and that'll come into play a little bit later. Um, also, another reason why I believe that Frazier wanted to distance himself um, from Oswald in this in this package, uh, but we'll get there, I promise. Um, so. Let's move forward a little bit to after the assassination actually takes place. Okay. Um, we have, you know, the alleged roll call, you know, and supposedly Oswald is the only one missing. And uh, but actually, Frazier, Frazier's told said over the years that uh, you know he pretty much after this roll call, he pretty much dipped out after work because they weren't going to do any more work that day. And but nobody seems to know where Frazier was. Was from about one to four o'clock that day. Um, he didn't go home, and apparently, at some point, you know, after Oswald is arrested, they put two and two together rather quickly. You know, as far as to where Oswald was and and where he was staying the night before, and who he got a ride with that morning, and they were in contact with Living May relatively quickly, and apparently. Frazier contacted her at some point that afternoon and said that he was visiting their stepfather in the hospital. Now, interesting that Lenny May told the authorities that her stepfather was at Parkland. And after checking at Parkland, well, he's not there, this guy. And uh, he actually was in Irving Medical Center, <laughs> not Parkland. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. So this is where the Irving PD went out and picked uh, Frazier up. He was, I guess, there visiting his stepfather. Now, you now, can now real, yeah. real quickly here, just for the uninitiated listener, Parkland Hospital, uh, curiously enough, is exactly where Kennedy winds up going when he's shot and they uh, attempt to do life-saving procedures on him, which were really fruitless and pointless, but they had to do it anyway. And later on... <laughs> sadly enough, is exactly where Lee Harvey Oswald goes to die as well. Uh, Parkland Hospital is continuously recurring here uh, regarding a whole bunch of interesting events, including uh, the discovery of the alleged magic bullet. I mean, obviously, Governor John Connolly was also treated there. Um, <clears throat> there's a variety of interesting things. Lyndon Johnson ends up in a room at Parkland uh, while waiting to be told that he's president, so-called, uh, according to different stories, so on and so forth. And some of the most famous images, if people ever look at any of the archival footage uh, related to the assassination, there's a whole bunch of images of the hospital, of uh, people standing outside of the hospital, activity outside of the hospital. Uh, this is brought up in j virtually every single documentary film or news footage uh, uh, as, as stock footage in every discussion ever. So Parkland's an interesting hospital in the discussion. 
And uh, if if Buell Frazier were at Parkland Hospital at the time, then that means he would have been present when the president was wheeled in there or he would have been present uh, while they were working on it and all these other interesting events were going on, including, well, guess what, kiddies, the discovery of the alleged magic bullet. Um, I just wanted to throw that note in there, but it turns out that that's not where Buell was because the authorities picked him up where again? Over at the Irving Medical Center in Irving, mm-hmm. which makes a little more sense. Right. So he's picked up there, and he is brought to Dallas. He's questioned for a little while, and I guess he, he tells a story, and they're satisfied with it. And uh, now accompanying him to the Perhaps uh, Skype froze up on us for a second there. Uh, Rob was saying that, yeah, he winds up telling his story after he's picked up in Irvin. Uh, he's brought to the infamous Mr. Will Fritz, who is the uh, lead homicide guy there in Dallas. I don't know what's going on with Rob's Skype, but all of a sudden I think it froze. Can you hear me? Uh, there we go. Okay. I, I was just saying that uh, that he winds up being picked up and then questioned by the same guy who winds up questioning Oswald, Will Fritz, uh, who is the, you know, the head of the homicide and robbery division there in Dallas. Uh, that was the only blank I filled in while you were gone. Go ahead. Okay. So, yeah, they, they pick him up, they, and his sister and their um, some, some minister uh, actually goes, accompanies uh, Frazier to the, the first time that they go to the uh, DPD to be questioned. And now this was a seemingly innocuous session. Where basically he told his story and they said, okay, if we need anything else, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll come get you. And so they started to take him home. Well, at the same time, you know, they were, they were talking to Frazier. They're talking to Oswald. And Oswald, so, you know, something kind of came up that they asked Oswald about that Frazier had mentioned, which was this, the whole curtain rod story. And Oswald told him something, you know, well, they're, you know, I didn't have any curtain rods. What are you talking about? All I had was my lunch. Mm. So, you know, Stovall and Rose, they're, they're, they're taking Frazier and, and his family home. Well, they get a call on the radio to bring Frazier back to the Dallas Police Department immediately so they can clear this clear this uh, thing up because it's kind of important, you know, when we're talking about the package and curtain rods and guns and everything else. Well, and what's funny is we didn't mention this before that when, because uh, people might say to themselves, well, how does this come up? Well, according to Frazier, that is what Oswald told him was in the package. He didn't got a gun in here. Uh, you know, none of that ever came up. So according to Frazier's story, he thought literally that there was a uh, – a bunch of curtain rods in that paper package, right? Supposedly. But, you know, if you think about it this way, um, Frazier was a gun owner, okay? He likely knew what a rifle looks like in a rifle bag or a rifle case, I would think. Um, but, you know, he tells a story of saying, oh, what's in the bag, Lee? Oh, just some curtain rods. Oh, okay. You know, and, and, and seemingly that was all the conversation entailed. Um, but like I said, uh, I, I would believe, you know, uh, a guy who is an avid hunter, who was a gun owner would pretty much know if, if there's a gun in a bag, you know what I'm saying? You know, because things are a certain length, they're a certain shape. And even in a paper bag, it's going to make some impression. So, yeah. you know, something might emerge to give him a hint. Let's say if it was a rifle in that 
that bag, he would have known it. Okay, and that'll that'll come into play in a, in a little bit. Another reason for him to want to distance himself, um, if if this was the case. Right. So they bring him back to the, the Dallas Police Department for further questioning. Um, things get a little heated uh, with Will Fritz. You know, they're trying to really put the pressure on to Frazier to get to the truth of things. They uh, they arrest him. They threaten. Uh, they're threatening him. They're trying to get him to sign a confession to be an accessory. Um, and you know, according to Frazier, he's really upset and and you know. He's ready to fight Will Fritz, basically. Um, and they end up giving Frazier a lie detector test. Now, when it comes to this lie detector test, we don't have the results of it. We we, we know what some people say, oh, he passed with flying colors. But <clears throat> if that was the case, Chuck, then why is it still classified at the National Archives to this very day? Well, that's interesting because I've never seen a copy of this alleged lie detector test. Uh, I've heard stories of it, and I'm not satisfied that uh, it even exists, to be honest with you. because oh, it, it exists. Oh, it does? Okay. I'm looking, see, it's, now you're telling me something new. <laughs> yeah, the, the National Archives the identifier number is 836-101, the Buell Wesley Fraser polygraph. It was created uh, – well, this number was created by the ARRB in the series files of Thomas E. Samalak, 94 to 98. Okay. And it is classified, restricted, possibly specific access restriction, JFK Assassination Records Collection Act. Some materials may have been withdrawn for reasons of personal privacy or national security. <laughs> so it exists, hmm. and it's in the National Archives, and it's still classified to this very day. Now, okay. I know some people that are trying to get their hands on this thing, uh, but it hasn't happened yet. Well, now, what's fascinating there is that Buell Wesley Frazier should have no bearing on national security, uh, logically speaking. <laughs> so is it just being withheld because it, for his personal protection? I wouldn't think so. I mean, I don't see a reason for it, honestly. I'm asking because based on the it's parameters a, a, you just read, yeah. Yeah, I know. So, but the interesting thing about this polygraph is now, uh, what was his name? Bentley. Paul Bentley was the chief polygraph examiner for the DPD, right. but he's actually not the guy that that gave Frazier this polygraph. It was actually done by a guy named R. D. Lewis. Mm. Now. Why this is important is it comes into play when there is a book written in the 1970s by a a former chief of CIA's Problems Analysis Branch, a guy by the name of George O'Toole. He wrote a book called The Assassination Tapes, in which right. he used a PSE machine, which is basically a voice stress analysis machine, um, to analyze statements made by a lot of these uh, Dallas cops and actually Buell Frazier. And Frazier actually plays a very important part in this book. Um, now, people people get a little iffy when you start talking about voice stress analysis, um, but it, it's actually re- more accurate than a polygraph. And well, now, what's fascinating to me about this, by the way, a little spoiler for people out there, is that uh, the public statements made by Lee Harvey Oswald have been run through voice stress analysis as well. Yes. Happened day. 
Yes, and they've been determined that he was not lying when he said, I'm a patsy, I didn't shoot anybody, um, which is, is interesting. And But we're talking about Bill Frazier here today. Now, right. he analyzed the CBS footage that you were talking about at the beginning of the show that he did You know, around the time the Warren Commission uh, report came out where he took them through their day in the drive right. to work and all this, and you know they were going step by step through everything. Well, he ran this audio through the voice stress analysis machine, and the results were not good for Buell Frazier. Um, it was determined he was showing deception in several of his statements um, that day. Now, if you go get this book, the assassination tapes, actually in the back of the book, it, it's really great. I mean, it shows you the 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 computer strip, you know, and it kind of shows you, okay, this this is where he was lying. And what he was saying at this precise moment. Right. Um, so if you don't have a copy of that book, you can get one on Amazon. I got one. And another interesting thing, okay, he analyzed that. But he wanted to talk to him again and ask him his own questions. So he hires a prominent uh, private detective to track Frazier down. Because interestingly enough, when it was time to talk to the HSCA, in the late 70s, um, HSCA, HSCA investigators tried to interview Frazier in 77, and he stalled repeatedly. The interviewer who was attempting to interview him wrote, Frazier continues to procrastinate. Now he wants to meet in the lawyer's office next Friday. Definite resistance, but reason not apparent. Will require another call tomorrow at 10 p.m. or 10 a.m. to see if lawyer says okay. This mm. was on October 20th, 1977. Call Buell Wesley Frazier at work and get more put off. Now, okay, by this time, Frazier's in the Army, and nobody seems to know where he is. And it has a hard time finding him or tracking him down. Well, George O'Toole finally tracks him down, and he pretends to be, well, through, a, through, a, through this surrogate private detective, who is also a certified PSE machine uh, examiner, through this proxy he's asking Frazier a bunch of questions now this guy pretends to be a reporter in Dallas he he lies to Frazier says he wants to ask some questions some questions and you know not not to spook him away or anything he kind of kept the questions innocuous but you know not not really pressuring him he just wanted Frazier's responses on on tape now the the analysis of this was done by his proxy and George O'Toole and they both came up with the same thing that Frazier's being deceptive again mm-hmm. when it comes to the events of that day. Why is this important? Well, it's just another indicator when you add it to everything else, Chuck, that things aren't what they seem. The, you know, the official story that we've been hearing for the past 53 years might not be the truth. Now, we move forward a little bit because, I mean, if you actually think about it, Chuck, Frazier's kind of an odd duck. You know, he kind of, you don't hear from him except around the time of the assassination, you know, and, and he'll do some news stories, you know, where they tell a story over again, you know, and he'll pop his head out every five years or so, um, you know, to tell a story again. But he's never, he's never actually been sat down and asked really, really hard questions by a researcher, you know, as far as, you know, all the books written about the Kennedy assassination, not once. Has no. he had to answer any questions by a researcher? 
You know, that's interesting, too, because he has allowed himself to be available for various uh, media projects. I, I think, if, if memory serves me correctly, and I may be wrong here, I think he was even called as a witness during that ridiculous mock trial uh, uh, that Bugliosi did, you know. Yeah. Um, so when the media comes, when you bring a camera, when you bring, you know, I'm from TV station or I'm with this film company or whatever, he does seem to come come out of his hole but uh but generally speaking no researchers have kind of not been able to get him for you know the in-depth intense interview that's true no yeah. yeah and and it's by design um you know he like i said even the hsc investigators had a hard time pinning him down to where they could talk to him you know he had and, and georgia too had to hire a private detective to find him and uh so Moving forward a little bit from that, you know, when you when you analyze his statements and and it's it's indicated that he's being deceptive. Okay, <clears throat> now if we go back, now the I like to go back to the HSCA stuff because it's very interesting to me. Um, a guy I've had on my show before, Richard Gilbride, he actually went to the archives and obtained a lot of these HSCA interviews of the school book depository workers. They were actually recorded on you know on tape. Their interviews, and he has transcribed a lot of them using, you know, software and, of course, his own two ears to transcribe a lot of these things. But the interesting thing about Frazier's HSCA testimony tapes is that two out of four of them are so badly damaged that they cannot be described. The other two are barely listenable, but there are some interesting tidbits. Um, mm. Frazier talks about, uh, you know, the military. He thinks it was some kind of a military operation uh, going on in Dealey Plaza that day. But he also gives us this little nugget. Okay. Frazier. No, I didn't know that he'd been caught. But I will tell you this. I knew that he had the rifle. Now, Moriarty says, mm-hmm. Frazier says he did. And I said to myself, I said, oh, my God, that was the first thing right there on the steps. I also knew that I didn't want to get pulled in. Moriarty says, mm-hmm. Now, if you analyze that statement to me, <laughs> because a lot of these guys, you know, when they were talking to the HSCA, you know, they were able to give, give these guys reassurance that, you know, whatever they said was not going to get them in any trouble. Okay? They even gave a lot of these guys immunity. Mm-hmm. And assurance that nobody would ever even hear these tapes you know, or, or any transcripts, this, that, and the other. So a lot of these people that were talking to the HSCA were a lot more forthcoming with information than they were to the Warren Commission. Now, if you analyze that little small statement, okay, I didn't know he'd been caught, but I will tell you this. I knew that he had the rifle, okay? Mm. That's a problem, okay? Because if, you, if you're Frazier, okay, and you're standing out on the steps at 12.30, and you hear rifle fire. The president gets his head blown off. Okay. You're standing on the steps. And he even says, I said to myself, oh, my God, that was the first thing right there on the steps. I also knew that I didn't want to get pulled in. So what are you going to do? Are you going to try to distance yourself from knowing that Oswald had a rifle? Well, sure you are. No, sir. He, he had a package, but no, no, no. It was only two feet long. It was only two feet long. wasn't wasn't three feet long. wasn't three and a half feet long. It was two feet long. 
No way that rifle could have been in a two-foot bag, and he knew that. Because I don't think Oswald in custody ever copped to this curtain rod story. No, he never did. And what's also fascinating here is that uh, it, it changes the entire character of, hey, look, I just thought he had curtain rods, to I knew he had it. Well, how did you know? Nobody follows this up, right? Uh, uh, how did you know he had a gun? Uh, up to this point, the only thing I'd ever read prior to uh, his HSCA testimony is that he just thought that he had this package of curtain rods. That's what he said repeatedly over the years. Now, <clears throat> it's interesting that he jumps to, you know, look, able-bodied men in Dallas on that day, uh, any of them could have had a firearm. It's not unusual. So why did he jump right to Oswald had a firearm? That's kind of dicey, isn't it? Well, this, like I said, this was in the late 70s. And, and, of course, he's never made this statement in public on camera. Okay, this was made to the HSCA, uh, you know, under severe auspices. Now, you know, some other things that, 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 that come out of this HSCA interview is that Frazier says that actually – um, you, he says, they say, you, you told the investigators that you were put in a police lineup with Oswald. About what time of night did this take place? They were asking him, uh, was it before or after you were called back to the station to take a polygraph? And they also said, uh, you told the HSCA that Oswald remarked that he owned Dallas, that he said to you, you drove the car. Do you remember anything else that went on during that lineup? So apparently Frazier was actually up with Oswald and we, and that's not in the official record either. Yeah, I don't recall him being in a lineup with Oswald. Uh, my understanding. <laughs> right. That's odd. Yeah. But apparently he was, um, you know, according to his HSCA testimony. So when you, when you look at all this in the context of, of, of Frazier's, you know, what, what people say they saw Frazier do that morning is A, drop the guy off at the building. Okay. If he had this, he would have known. Like I said before, he knows what a rifle in a bag looks like. If you're a hunter and you own a gun, you know what a rifle in a rifle bag looks like. But, I mean, it could have been as innocuous as, as, as Oswald told him because there was rifles in the building even even a couple of days before the assassination. People were bringing rifles into the building to look at them. Yeah, Roy you truly know, had a said, rifle. Roy truly had a rifle days before in the building, if I remember correctly. Yeah, you're right. You know, and he could have told Frazier, well, I need to take it to the sporting goods store after work to get it worked on and get a different scope put on. It could have been seemingly as innocent as that, as, you know, right. as, a, as a reason why Oswald was bringing this gun to work. Okay. okay. But if you're Buell Frazier and you bring the assassin of the president to work and you knew that he had a gun and you didn't say anything on the day that the president is riding right by your work then that could possibly be turned against him. Um, no matter seemingly how innocent it could have been, it's not a good look. You know what I'm no, saying? No, not a good look because literally speaking, forget about intentions or conversation or anything else. He gives a ride to the guy, brings the weapon and the man who is uh, later on accused of killing the president to work, you know, with his – basically brings the – means and the <laughs> and the individual to the opportunity uh all we got left now is motive okay uh to tie him into the case and uh and and it gets strange so, <clears throat> so you could see why 
uh, he might have not been yeah. so anxious. Yeah, okay, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, people know us, Chuck, and they know that, of course, we are on the conspiracy side of things, and, and we don't think that Oswald was up in the sixth floor shooting this rifle. Okay, so what would Oswald have brought this gun to work for? Well, there's a lot of possibilities. Um, like I said, there was guns and rifles in the building, you know, a couple of days before the assassination. You know, they could have, and Oswald was supposedly one of these guys standing around look, looking at him. Now he could have told somebody, oh, I, I got this old piece of crap rifle. Um, you know, and, uh, maybe somebody might have expressed an interest in it. Maybe wanted to buy it. Or maybe he was approached somewhere other than work and, and, and said, you know, and they, he made some kind of a deal to sell, to sell his gun. So he brought it to work that day to do so. Well, or he could he could have been looking to sell it. He could have been looking to join. Hey, look, I got a rifle. I can go hunting with you. Like I said before, it was hunting season uh, in in that area at the time. Um, there's lots of possibilities here. Hey, listen, we're all looking at our guns. Maybe we're going to go to the gun range. Maybe he brought it just to go to a gun range afterwards. There are all sorts of possibilities for why Lee Harvey Oswald could have brought a gun to work that day. Um, you know, cause people like to point to it and say, Oh, there's only one reason why he would have done it. And, uh, and <clears throat> of course I always point to the fact that, well, you know, if you were realistically looking at carrying out that scenario, then it makes absolutely no sense that he left his revolver at the uh, rooming house because, yeah. uh, personally, I don't know, if, I don't know about you, Rob, but if I was to imagine myself trying to shoot, uh, somebody who was well guarded from an elevated position, I might expect that that would draw some attention and I may need a small arm to, uh, help get myself out of the building afterwards. I think it would be incumbent upon me to carry the uh the 38 okay yeah. uh you know just just because i might need it to shoot my way out rob if i was looking to do this i don't know you know again maybe it's just me but doesn't it seem strange yeah well i mean on a deeper conspiratorial level okay if if you look at it this way chuck this rifle this man liquor kind of rifle was obtained by not lee Hoswell, alec heidel Okay, it was named, it was under the name of Alec Heidel, the supposed Castro supporting communist. Okay. It's not out of the realm of possibility that whoever, cause I don't believe Oswald to be totally innocent in this whole thing. I think he knew something or knew, was involved in some kind of a conspiracy type thing. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, it's possible that he was told to, okay, we're going to make it look like this guy, this, 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 uh, Castro supporter was shooting at the president, maybe not even to kill him, you know, maybe just to shoot at him. Um, so, so Kennedy is not so soft on this stuff anymore. And, you know, Lee thought maybe, okay, well, I can bring this rifle. It's a, it's in somebody else's name. Uh, they'll never tie it back to me because, you know, Lee was not the brightest uh, bulb um, and never would have thought that, oh, they're going to go through back through the, uh, you know, the post office and, and the receipts from clients and this and that, the other, and tie it back to him. This rifle was purchased under the name of Alec Heidel. Right. And, I, and I've and i even said when pressed on other shows, when people tell me, well, explain that scenario, I, I've said to them, you know what, if you think about the, uh, the way long away missed shot that uh, must have struck the curb near James Tagg, and you put that into context and imagine that that shot quite possibly could have been fired by Oswald from the school book depository as a way to simulate 
an attack on the president. If he was told to do that, he might have thought he was doing, you know, something that was, uh, <clears throat> you know, again, we're getting deeply conspiratorial in our thinking. But if you imagine that, I can imagine Oswald being ordered to do that and not thinking for a moment that it wouldn't be tied to anything other than this fictitious individual, doesn't matter, uh, hey, look, you're actually doing another service for your country kind of deal, and uh, so on and so forth. As crazy as that sounds, it does fit the scenario if we consider the fact that you have a rifle that wasn't sighted in uh, and everything else kind of firing extremely wildly. Uh, uh, you know, I, I forget how many feet away it would have had to be to make that trajectory work from the school book depository. But if you think about it that way and uh, maybe another shot landing in the grass or something like that, uh, that in and of itself, just an attempt on the president's life would have been valuable enough to ramp up support for something if you could tie it back to a communist sympathizer, a Castro sympathizer, uh, so on and so forth. Uh, what do you think of that? Yeah, I mean, that's another plausible scenario. You know, another one is, hey, you know, Lee, here's, here's what we need you to do. Take your rifle to work, hide it behind some boxes, here's some, here's some, some shells, throw them down on the floor in front of this window. And we'll take care of the rest. That too, you yeah. Know, <laughs> you know, because some, somebody could have easily slipped in there and uh, either grabbed the rifle and shot from there or they shot from a different location altogether, like the Daltex or something like that, to simulate the trajectory. Um, you know, and it, and it could, like I said, it could be any, any of these possibilities. Or it could have been Oswald no, right. um, shooting this stupid rifle again, <laughs> you know. Just to make the lone nutters happy, it could have been Oswald up there, but when you analyze all these statements Mm -hmm. and and what Frazier said and his actions, it seems to me that it it seems to me that he knew that Oswald had a rifle that day, and he knew Oswald took it into that building that day, but he doesn't want to admit it because, once again, CYA and self-preservation. Well, right. And again, put it in context with the fact that he had been hauled in <laughs> and asked yeah. to sign a confession and polygraphed and God knows what else really went on because we don't have recordings of the entire interrogation. But I mean, they, they could have tried to intimidate him, uh, you know, <clears throat> normal police tricks. We've already got you busted. Uh, we know that you were involved with XYZ where they turn around and tell you they already have some information. We've got your fingerprints already. You know, trying to uh, 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 coerce a confession, so to speak, right? Yeah, I mean, because, well, interestingly enough, Chuck, okay, at, right after the assassination, okay, this was about lunchtime. And Frazier stated that, you know, he's standing out there on the front steps, which we can see him in, in several of the films, like the the, the uh, couch film, the Darnell, he's a, a He's in the auctions, but you can't really tell right. um, a clear shot of him. But by all accounts, by all eyewitnesses, Frazier was out on the front steps during the assassination. And, you know, he's standing out there seeing all these people eat lunch and everything, and he's getting kind of hungry. Well, on this day, now normally he ate lunch in the domino room with, with everybody else, you know, a lot of these warehouse workers. But on this day... After the president's head gets blown off in front of him, and he's standing on the steps thinking to myself, oh, my God, I knew Oswald had a rifle, and I was thinking I don't want to get pulled into this stuff. Okay, he's standing there dumbfounded on the steps for a while. Well, what does Frazier do? 
Does he go to run into the grassy knoll to see what's going on up there where everybody else is running? Does he go back in the building, try to go back to work? Does he talk mm-hmm. to anybody? No. You know what he does, Chuck? I think he leaves. No, he doesn't leave. What does he do? He goes to the basement and eats his lunch. Now, I wasn't aware, I wasn't aware of that, actually. (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of odd behavior. He said the reasoning for it is because he was out there and everybody else was eating around him and he was getting real hungry, you know. Uh, which, you know, after you see somebody get their head blown off, that's the first thing I want to do is go eat lunch, you know what I mean? But yeah, this is what he tells people that, (laughs) (laughs) this is what he tells people. When he got to work that morning, he, he took his coat and his lunch to the basement and dropped it off there. Normally, he didn't do that. Every other day, he would take his stuff to the domino room. But this day, he's for some reason, he took his stuff down there. And that's where he went um, after the assassination took place. He went down there and ate his lunch and took, you know, not 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 a huge amount of time because I think he said he only had a sandwich and uh, a piece of fruit. Uh, so maybe five, ten minutes, he's down there eating his lunch. But this is a crucial time. Of course, when you when you're looking at the assassination and you're thinking about Baker and truly running in the building, and the elevator's not working, uh, guess where the power controls are for everything in the in the school book depository? Basement. In the basement. <laughs> now we also have the story of Geneva Hine, who who, who backs this up uh, about the phones going dead at about this time. You know, because normally they have lights flashing all over the phones, uh, but. All of a sudden, that goes down. The elevators are down, which is the whole reason that Truly and Baker have to take the stairs. Right. Um, now, we don't know for sure what, you know, if, if if this was something sinister or this was something planned in advance, um, you know, or even if he did anything at all. You know, it's quite possible that the elevators were just stuck. On, on yeah. one of the upper floors, if the gate was open, it wouldn't have came down. Yeah, see, that's the thing is that a lot of people have had these discussions about, look, if you have the gate open and the thing's up on the third floor, you're not going to be able to get it back down to the first, so on and so forth. Um, so I've heard those discussions over the years, but I've never considered the idea because a lot of the stuff for the school book depository was in the basement. Uh, in fact, even the phone's going dead could be yeah. attributed to somebody being in the basement. Um and again, I, I, I'm not prepared to say that Wesley Buell Frazier is a part of a conspiracy or anything else. It's just, it's rather curious, though, isn't it? It definitely is. And he's the only one that puts himself in the basement. He said he was down there by himself and that he ate his lunch and he came upstairs and he realized that, okay, there's not going to be done today. So he said he, he walked out to leave. Now, many, many years later, he would do the uh, sixth floor oral history. I think he did it in 2013. And he said some interesting things on there that he had never said before, such as the, the Fritz interrogation and him wanting to fight him. But he also said something else, Chuck. And he said he was standing there on the steps getting ready to leave, you know, right out the front door, and uh, which makes, makes no sense why he would leave out the front door anyway. He he probably would have, should have, should have left out the back door to be, you know, closer walk to his car but yeah this is what he says yeah 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 he says he's standing there on the front steps and all this commotion is going on around him you know pandemonium people milling around all over the place okay but he sees 
his old buddy Lee Oswald, he says, walking up Houston Street as though Oswald had come out the back door. He said he followed him through the crowd until he walked up Houston Street and made a left on the main. And that's and then he lost sight of him. Now, this contradicts everything we've ever heard before of how Oswald left the building. By all accounts, he left out the front door, you know, relatively quickly. Yeah, I've never heard an account where he left out. I've heard people make that supposition, but I've never heard anybody say that uh, they they saw him leave anywhere other than through the front door. Um, Even if you go back to... uh, uh, the NBC reporter that winds up running into the school book depository and making a phone call to NBC TV from the school book depository, right? Uh, what was right. it, Robin? Um, dear, I, I can't remember the guy's name, but you know who I'm talking about, who's giving the live report to NBC television. He even thinks that he bumped into Lee Harvey Oswald coming through what? The front door, doesn't he? Yeah. You know, yeah. and, and all the accounts yeah, seem to say that he left through the front door, except now what, what sounds like Frazier is explaining is that he had to have gone out the back door. Right. Which, which makes hmm. no sense whatsoever. Right. You know, because yeah. Oswald would, ha- would have actually been leaving work while Frazier was in the basement eating his lunch. Because it didn't take Oswald too much longer after the supposed alleged second floor encounter. Um, or first floor, if you believe, uh, what, what some people are trying to prove now, um, where this, you know, encounter actually took place. Um, be it the second or the first floor, it doesn't really matter. Um, but by all accounts, Oswald left shortly thereafter. Now. Yeah. Within 90 seconds of the shooting, some sort of, uh, confrontation should have happened between, uh, Marion Baker, uh, Roy Truly was with him and Lee Harvey Oswald. This has been part of the discussion for a very long time, and people have disputed it based on whether he had a soda in his hand and all kinds of different things. But nowadays, yeah, people are even challenging that. But either way, at exactly this time, according to Frazier, he should have either been outside still or in the basement, you know, or or in the basement, which is weird. Yeah, this this whole thing gets a little strange now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it it almost seems to me that, that that act of going to the basement right after the assassination would would be an act of avoidance. Um, maybe like and like he said on the steps, I didn't want to be pulled in. So, you know, if you knew that the guy you brought to work had brought a gun, the president has just been killed. Do you want to run into the? Do you want to run into that guy in the building and uh, see him again, or possibly be asked for another ride somewhere, or things of this nature? You know, maybe he went to the basement so he wouldn't have to actually have that encounter with with Lee Oswald. I mean, I'm just speculating a little bit here, but see now, and I would speculate in the on the inverse here, where I'm going to place myself in the basement um, to explain why it is I'm not present at any of this other stuff. <laughs> yeah, know? well, yeah, that too. Mm-hmm. You know, the whole thing is just very, very odd. You know, and it's almost as if his behavior is, you know, because he wouldn't. He, not too long after the assassination, um, you know, Frazier stopped working at the school book depository because, you know, just the whole thing, just because of the whole thing and the whole investigation, it was really, you know, hampering his lifestyle. Um, you know, when you have when you're that well known in a city like Dallas and, you know, you have ties to this assassin, you know, they were beating this guy's door down all the time, trying to talk to him. 
and this and that. So he joins the military not too long after this, um, and he stays actually uh, in the military for quite a while. I mean, he gets out, I think, for a couple of years, but then he goes right back in and spends another 20, couple of years uh, in the Army. Um, and this is at the height of the Vietnam War. And But somehow, despite folks pulling three and four tours of Vietnam, Frazier never leaves the continental United States. He's stationed up in Washington State. Um, it's kind of like an, an intake and an outtake center, um, which is interesting. Um, you know, so he's been part of the government apparatus for quite some time, um, at least employed by them. And, you know, when you're talking about army, you know, you, you get into military intelligence type things. Um, and, and you can tell his demeanor changed a lot when, when you look at the mock trial, because that was when, uh, you know, he was, he was in the military then. And you could tell his demeanor had changed a lot from, you know, a, a young kid who was, uh, seemingly scared, um, to this hardened uh, older man. And now this, what appears to be a, you know, a sweet, kind, gentle old man. Um, and interestingly enough, Chuck, um, I talked to Hugh Ainsworth, who seems to be one of one of Buell's handlers there in Dallas, um, still to this day. He's actually writing a book, finally, with Frazier. Oh. And they, they've been working on it for a couple of years. Um, but Frazier's been making himself uh, known at a lot of these conferences in the past couple of years, which he hadn't done before. That's true. And I find that interesting that now, you know, he's, he's, he's going to a lot of these conferences. He was at the ARC conference. He was at uh, Lancer last year. He's going to be there again this year. Mm. And, uh, you know, he's, he, Ainsworth has said that they're writing a book together about everything and that finally the truth is going to be known or something. Um, well, we'll see. You know, that will be <laughs> we'll interesting see. if he fills in a lot of these gaps because to me it, it leaves a lot of strange questions and, and leads me to want to speculate. I don't like to speculate about characters like this. Um, you know what? We have a phone caller. You want to join him into the uh, discussion, Rob? Sure. All right. Well, I do believe we have Steve Rowe with us. Hey, Steve. Hey, can you hear me? Sure can. Hi, Steve. Hey, Rob. How you doing, bud? Good, sir. I uh, just gonna make two points tonight. Uh, <clears throat> why uh, Fraser was revving his motor out there was because of the voltage regulator, not the battery. Uh, I don't know if you guys remember. Well, Rob, you may not. But the old days, voltage regulators used to stick, and uh, if you couldn't, if they were stuck open, you couldn't uh, start the cars. That's what happened with, that. and he said that too. And the other thing is, uh, <clears throat> Fraser said he was uh, driving from Irving to Dallas, and it was misting off and on. We had to turn the wiper blades off and on. So, and I remember. The, I kind of remember that day when I was there, that it was kind of off and on rain. But uh, anyway, that he had to let them off in the rain. No, it wasn't raining. It was an off and on rain. And that's all. 
No, that's an interesting point because I, I didn't, I wasn't aware that that was a voltage regulator thing. I mean, that's sort of like today. You need to kind of run the car around even if you got an alternator and it's not quite charging the battery back. Sometimes you gotta, you gotta run it around and you can't just, it actually can't sit idle in some cases with uh, certain problems, let's say, right? Um, so, you know, that kind of thing makes sense. But there's other weird things going on with, with Frazier's story that I don't necessarily understand. Um, you know, this idea that he had ideas in his head while he's standing on the steps. Um, what really was their relationship? I've always found that kind of empty, like not really fully explained how it is, you know, they could uh, spend time together and there's no context for it. I, I've, I've always found that odd. I mean, you've read a lot of this stuff, Steve. What, what do you think about that, though? Well, I'm, I'm just going to kind of agree there with you guys. Although I'm, I'm taking a different approach here, and I'm not going to comment on it tonight, but but I think uh, yes, I think uh, Fraser has been kind of holding back a lot of stuff. I don't know if it's nefarious or whatever, but uh, somewhat I think is just CYA. But uh, uh, you know, there's 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 a lot of stuff with Fraser that I don't know. One one day he says I think Lee did it. Next day, you know, um, he's innocent, you know. So he he's all over the map sometimes. And uh, but you know, as uh, Rob said, uh, he's coming out with a book, and I didn't know Ainsworth was working and wanted as well. But uh, um, yeah, it's a little troubling. But, but <laughs> yeah, well, you know, maybe maybe so, you know. But <laughs> I don't know. I know I know somebody else that's been looking at. He's looking at the photographs he's got in there, but, uh, but yeah, I don't know. Uh, you know, there's, there's some stuff about Wesley Frazier that I have questions with. Uh, well, you got to say this, anyway. Steve, because look, it, it, there, there's some open ended stuff that's there that doesn't quite make sense. I'm not saying that the guy is nefarious. I'm not saying that he's doing anything more than what you said, which is just, look, CYA, right? Uh, I don't want to be tied to this. I mean, um, I, I made sure to mention that at the top, that there was many people that had, you know, tangential uh, roles in the assassination that just, look, man, I don't want to even talk about this. This is the attitude that they took for a long time. And uh, and you know that's true as well. There's a lot of people that are just like, look, I don't want to go into details. You know, leave me alone already because they'd already been inundated or they didn't want to be tied to the terrible act or, right? I mean, all that. Yeah, exactly. I agree with that. No problem. You know, I mean, uh, there's a lot of people that clammed up after this thing. We were scared out of their, their mind. I see that. And, uh, but anyway, I, that's all I had to say. All right. Well, look, Steve, I, doing, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> good, good, good. Thank you, Steve, for the, for the, 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 uh, the comments. And, you know, I just want to say this real quick, you know, when I when I put forth this scenario to, to various people or post it online or something like that, I get a lot of blowback from people who who love Wesley Frazier, who know him, who have you know lived in Dallas, have seen him at these uh, conferences for for many many years, who think that he's just the nicest guy in the world, and it, it's it's absolutely ludicrous of me to question him uh, whatsoever. And, and there's also some blowback on the low nut side, which which is where Steve's coming from. But look, you know, I, I, I'm giving you. Oswald taking a rifle into the school book depository in a plausible scenario with which that happened. And I still get blowback from, from, from the lone nutters. 
um, you know, when I talk about this stuff. So I'm getting it from both sides. But, you know, once again, I'm not saying it's anything nefarious about Buell Frazier. But, you know, he, he could have just been distancing himself from, from the truth. Um, because, you know, the, if Oswald had a package that day, it was not two feet long. It was a rifle in a three-and-a-half-foot-long package. He either had a package or he didn't. There is no two-foot right. package. There's no curtain rods. You know, either he did or he didn't. And if he did, it was a rifle. And if it was a rifle in a bag, Frazier knew it. Well, right. And again, yeah. we've even given plausible ideas here as to why there could have been a man carrying a gun into work that day wouldn't have been all that bizarre. Um Honestly, I think if if Frazier had told a more sensible story, it would have well, it it would have diverted me from uh from questioning a lot of stuff. Um <clears throat> if you could put that in his hands going into that building reliably and sensibly, uh a lot of what I have as an argument goes away regarding uh, uh my standpoint on the whole, you know, being opposed to the lone nut solution. Um it really does. You have to be able to put that weapon in his hand. Uh, if, if Frazier would do that sensibly, definitively, once and for all, and say, look, I've been scared to talk about this for years, or it give me a good explanation of, you know, look, I didn't want to be blamed because I knew he had a rifle and didn't think he was going to shoot the president. I thought he was going to go shoot deer later. Um, you know, I would sit there and go, well, you know what, sir, that makes a lot of sense, and I can appreciate your position and understand it. Um, and it would it would actually solve a whole bunch of issues as far as I'm concerned. And sadly, once again, would probably bring me uh, a lot closer to maybe he actually did it, uh, <laughs> you know, than yeah. I've ever been. And I know Steve snickered at that toward the end. Of course, we've just run out of time. <laughs> Steve, thanks for calling. Rob, I'm telling you, man. We could probably go into this even deeper, but I think we did a pretty good job tonight. Rob Clark from the Lone Gunman Podcast, TLGpodcast.com. Rob, I'm telling you, man, I'm so grateful you came out with me tonight and did this. Thank you, sir. No problem. Thank you for having me, Chuck. And, guys, stay tuned to American Freedom Radio. Elemental Evolution is up next. The Ocelli Effect is done. I will see you guys on Monday. Oh, wait, I think I'm going to join Sherry in the next show. More Ocelli, sadly, for you people. Anyway, stay tuned. We'll be right back.
do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt Bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. At Farmers Insurance, we know every windshield collision has a unique sound. Beetle. Bird poop. Drone. Seen it? Covered it. Click for more. We are farmers. Bum, 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 bum. Underwritten by Farmers Truck Fire Insurance Exchanges and Affiliates. Products not available in every state.